Well, take your Bible and look over to John chapter 2. We, we find ourselves in that wonderful text here in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you've been around the faith for any amount of time, you're certainly aware of this miracle of the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. It is a fascinating account. It has a definite purpose to it. But as you're turning to John chapter 2, let me read the text for you and then we'll look at the scripture. John 2, 1. All of it is so important. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Well, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful miracle. The The turning of water into wine is the first of 37 miracles that our Lord performed in the Gospels. You say the first, how do we know it's the first? Well, it says it was the first. Did you see that there at 2.11 where it said this, the first of his signs. And so as he comes out of, you know, living for 30 years... Uh, as a carpenter in his home, he went into his public ministry, and this is the first of his signs. Now, as we walk through the Gospel of John, John the Apostle writes and records for us seven of those miraculous signs. Now, I mentioned 37 in total. In John's Gospel, there's seven signs. Of course, this list is not exhaustive. And the reason we know that it's not exhaustive, it says in John chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs. Not a few, but many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's 37 recorded signs or miracles, works, sometimes they're identified, seven in this book. But John himself, who was an eyewitness, said there's many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples. In addition, John states in John 21, 25, many other things Jesus did. And do you remember that statement in John 21, 25? He said, were every one of them to be written, John said, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, 
He did many other things, he said, and if every one of them was written, the world couldn't contain all that he did. And so it's fascinating. Many other things, but 37 and recorded in the gospel. Many other signs he did, but John gives us seven. And so he selects these seven sign miracles in his gospel that it might lead you to faith in Christ. And as I mentioned, according to 2.11, here is the first of seven signs. Now, this is the first miracle that he performed in his public ministry. And certainly, this is the first of the greater things promised. Look back in your gospel in chapter 1, verse 50. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nathanael? He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? And then he said, you will see greater things than these. Here is one of those greater things, and it falls right on the heels of that statement. Now, Grace Church family, as we approach this passage, there are a number of Bible teachers who approach this text in an allegorical manner, in a metaphorical manner. In fact, I have been studying the Bible for 30 years Uh, probably close to 20 hours a week and then some. And I have never come to a passage where I have seen so many Bible teachers, so many scholars interpret this text in an allegorical manner where they take a shade of what is stated in 2, 1 through 11 and then assign a metaphor to it or assign, if you will, uh, uh, an allegory to it of what this means. For example, and I'm only going to highlight a few. I probably could have spent the whole time on this. For example, the wedding feast. It's a wedding, right? We read it. It's a wedding feast. But the wedding feast is a picture, and I'm quoting here, of the nation. Now, I don't really think it's a picture of the nation. I think he's at a wedding feast, okay? I don't think there's anything special. He's at a wedding But of course, if you're going to take it in an allegorical fashion, you're going to say, ah, the wedding feast is a picture of the nation. Somebody had said that the wine ran out, the people's supply was emptied, yet their Messiah stood there to help them. And so there's a picture of the wedding, but there's a greater meaning behind the picture. Other commentators said this is a picture of the lost world today. They are tasting... Someone said, and these are all quotes, the world's pleasure, but finding no satisfaction. I suppose Mick Jagger would agree with that one. I just can't get no satisfaction. That's the point. He's at a wedding. They run out, and isn't that like the world today, unsatisfied? And that's what fulfillment they have, and whatever they have, it eventually runs out. Then they come to the water jars or the water parts and the pots. The water jars represent the human heart. Now listen, Grace Church, when we study the Bible, if it said water jars, I just think it means water jars. I don't think there's a double intended meaning there that the water jars mean something else. But other people think that the water jars represent the human heart, which is hard and empty. And these are stone jars and that represents the hearts of people that are hard. Water for washing is in the Bible, some would say. And the water for washing in the Bible is an image of the word of God. I agree, it is. It, is, it speaks of that in Ephesians 5. 
And then it goes on to say that all the servants had to do was fill the empty water pots with water, which is like the servant of God filling the heart of the unbeliever with the word. And that's the meaning, is that you need to give people the word of God because their hearts are empty. And this goes on and on and on. Uh, When some get to the explanation of the water turning into wine, the water turning into wine represents the sinner's heart that has been filled with the word of God. Then Christ can perform the miracle and bring joy. I mean, conservative Bible scholars take this and run with it. Outstanding men But I believe that as we look at how we study the Bible, we need to take the Bible and the thought we live off here is when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. We just want to interpret the Bible. Another one of these said this, all who would serve Christ should heed Mary's words. And Mary's words, you remember as we just read, is do whatever he says to do, okay? And here, they said that God uses foolish things to confound the mighty. Therefore, if you're just a usable vessel, you'll be like Mary, and she serves as an example. Listen, it is so allegorical that, to me, it's almost humorous. And always, as our goal here, uh, we want to let the text speak. And the historical context cannot be ignored, nor should it be abandoned. And then you might ask, well, then what's the passage all about? And I want to say thank you for asking. Let me, let me walk through this, okay? And I want to look at this passage by identifying four markers that lead to one important conclusion for you this morning. Four markers, it's very clear that lead to one important conclusion for you. So we're looking at the account here, the sign, when he turned water into wine, but it speaks to you this morning as you come in, whether you're in Christ or even if you're here as a guest without Christ. Here's the four markers I want to look at. I want to look at the marriage celebration in 2, 1 through 2. Then I want to look, secondly, at the momentary crisis in 3 through 5. Then I want to look at the miraculous command in 6 through 10. And then I want to finally look at the miracle's culmination. Okay? The marriage celebration, the momentary crisis, the miraculous command, and then the miracle's culmination. And we'll move through it pretty quick. I think some of you are wondering if I could cover 11 verses in one setting. I think I can. Okay? Number one, the marriage celebration. The marriage celebration. Look down in the text this morning in John's gospel. It simply says in 2.1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Stop right there. On the third day. Now, again, commentators go into that. That's the third day. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And certainly, John put this together with the resurrection in mind. I don't think so. I think all he's saying is on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So when you ask the question, three days from what? 
Well, I think three days, backing up in the passage, look back at 145, where it says there, Nathanael said to him, or back up to 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found of him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. I think all Jesus is saying here and all John is saying is on the third day there was a wedding. The third day after I met Nathaniel. You say, well, Scott, why do you track that way? Well, I think John's been writing that way. Look back in John chapter 1, verse 29. He's been walking us through this. Remember when uh, John the Baptist said in 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, he's out in the wilderness, and the next day, there was John pointing out the Lamb of God. Look again at chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. One of those disciples, later in the text, was Andrew, and the other one was an unnamed disciple whom we identified as John the Apostle. So you got the next day in 29, the next day in in 35, look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Okay? Now, I don't want to take too much time. It just says in 2-1 on the third day. In other words, three days later, after calling Nathaniel, he goes into this place called Cana. Now, it's, it makes sense that if they were in 128 at Bethany beyond Jordan, it would be about a three-day journey to reach this place in Galilee. It makes sense. Now, there might be a little bit of an illusion here. Do you remember I said Nathaniel, whom he just met, was from Cana? And that, uh, remember, it said that in John 21, 2. So remember, he's the one that said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And now three days later, if you will, he's in Nathaniel's hometown. Now, just a little geography as we build a little platform here. Nazareth is less than 10 miles from that place called Cana. To be exact, Jesus' hometown where he grew up is about nine miles away from Cana. And this is probably why the guest list included Jesus' mother. It included Jesus, and we'll look at that in a moment, and it included his disciples. I think they went to this wedding. I think these were possibly friends. These could even have been relatives. It may even explain Mary's role at the wedding. She seems to take the responsibility for when the wine runs out. And so here on our first marker, the celebration is a wedding. Now just back up with me. I mean, this is a major event. I mean, it's a major event in our day, is it not? I mean, it's a major event in this day. In fact, it was very common, doesn't happen here, for these weddings to last seven days in length. And whenever they had one of these weddings, it was a community celebration. They would often invite the entire community, and the community would come and join in the celebration. Now, what's interesting about these weddings is that unlike today, where traditionally the wedding is paid for by the who? bride's family, in biblical times, the groom was responsible for the expenses of the celebration. And I thought, I wish we were in that day because I have five daughters. Um, But that's what would happen. And they would send out invitations for these things. 
And the guest list went out. And on that guest list, look again at the text. It says there in 2.1 that the mother of Jesus was there. Now, you'll note that John didn't call her by her name Mary. That's John in his custom. He never names himself. He never records her name. The text, you notice, doesn't say anything about Joseph. In fact, the last time Joseph would be mentioned in the scripture is in Luke chapter 2 when his family made the journey to Jerusalem to the temple when Jesus was how old? He was 12 years of age. And I believe that he's not mentioned here. Remember, Jesus is around 30 at this time because he may have already, what? Died, we presume. Remember, at the cross, even our Lord Jesus Christ entrusted the care of his mother to John, and Joseph must have been dead at that time three years later. So you've got this massive celebration. It is a marriage celebration. Jesus' mother is there. And you'll know, look at verse 2. Jesus was also invited at the wedding with his disciples. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he's invited, but again, it's just about nine miles from his home. Mary seems to take some kind of formal role when the wine runs out. It very well could have been that these were friends of their family. It could have even been that these are relatives. Now, you'll note there in the text, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. You say, well, how many disciples does he have? Well, we know there's Andrew, chapter 1. We know there's Philip. We know there's Peter. We know there's Nathaniel, and then fifthly, there's an unnamed disciple that we think is John the Apostle. And so they're invited to this wedding. However, the marriage celebration was marked, secondly, by a momentary crisis. A momentary crisis. Look at the text in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, you're, you're thinking, okay, the wine ran out, we'll, we'll go over to Save Mart. Well, unlike that in biblical times, this would have been a major faux pas, okay? You're, you're, you're having guests come, you're bringing people in, they're coming for seven days, and the wine runs out. Now, let me just build a little bit on this. In Jewish thought, wine was a symbol of joy, in, in that sense, a true symbol. When you find wine mentioned in the Old Testament, it's mentioned around the theme of celebration. It's mentioned around the ideal of joy, according to Psalm 104. In fact, it's very interesting that the prophets of the Old Testament, their expectation of the Messianic age was that it would be a time where the wine would flow freely, if you will. In other words, when Messiah would come, the wine, it is said in these texts, would flow freely. It's in Jeremiah 31. It's in the book of Hosea. It's in the book of Amos chapter 9. It's in Isaiah 25. It's in Joel chapter 3. And so maybe as he comes into his public ministry, here he is, the Messiah, and maybe some people are going to begin to tie it back to that messianic age. But listen, when wine runs out in this culture, it was considered a major, as I mentioned, faux pas. There were things that I read this week that when wine would run out, that there were lawsuits that developed for people suing another, that they came to a celebration and the wine ran out. And don't act like that would be so weird, okay? If you planned a wedding and you had 100 guests there and they're in line for 60 and the food runs out at 65, would you not feel awful? 
In fact, you are about to put this couple on shame, to be honest. This couple, because of this wine running out, could mark the rest of their life, in this culture particularly, for embarrassment. And so it runs out. There's a crisis here. Now, some of you are going to ask about the drinking of wine at a wedding. Uh, Certainly in this culture, it was a staple drink in the day. Water was often impure because of the climate, because of the lack of refrigeration. Fruit juice would often ferment. And so wine was commonly, I think you know this, diluted with water in these days to one-third of the strength that we would hold today and to one-tenth of its strength back in biblical times. And so you have to understand, they're drinking wine, it's joy, it's celebration, very diluted, a staple drink of the day. And though the Bible does not forbid drinking wine, it soundly criticizes being drunk. I don't want to go too far past that and miss the point here. There's a crisis here. The wine runs out, if you will. And again, it's not trivial. Their childhood dreams are about to be shattered. The guests are about to be insulted. The family in this culture is about to be shamed. And Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, you crawl back into this account with me. Do you think when she said to Jesus, they have no wine that she thought he would perform a miracle. Do you think that? There's a lot of people who think that she told him because she's going to want him to perform a miracle. I'm one who thinks she didn't think he would perform a miracle for the simple reason, what do you think? Has he ever performed a miracle before? No. You've got apocrypha accounts where he, he makes doves come out of his hands. It's not in the Bible. It's an apocrypha part of history. But what I'm telling you, this is the first miracle he ever did. That's what the Bible says in 2.11. This is his first sign. So again, we know that he was born, God in the womb. That we understand. We understand that he grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But I'm telling you, I don't think he ever performed a miracle before this. So when people say, do you think, Scott, that Mary was going to ask Jesus to perform a miracle? No, I don't think so because I don't think she ever witnessed one herself. You say, well, then why did she ask Jesus and tell him they have no wine? Well, you certainly would agree with me at this point. This is a fascinating dialogue with Mary here. Is she certainly knew of the virgin birth, fair? The angel told her. She certainly knew of Gabriel's announcement. She certainly remembered Simeon's prophecy. She certainly remembered Anna's prophetic words. She knew something was very special about him, to say the least, but a miracle, no, I don't think. You say, well, then what's at stake here, Scott? I think this. I think Mary likely turned to Jesus, think with me on this, because it was her son who never sinned. Think about it. The guy never gave her wrong advice. He was perfectly obedient in her home. He had the perfect solution to every problem. He was the most resourceful person that ever walked the face of the earth. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about that. And she's a widow, I believe. We don't know about Joseph. I'm just telling you, he's not mentioned here. He's not mentioned at the cross. But I think he is the most resourceful person that has ever walked the face of the earth. Think about it. He never sinned. 
He grew in wisdom. We knew he, he was a child and he grew, but think about it. If there was a problem, he could fix it. He had a solution. He had abundant wisdom. He had abundant tactfulness, abundant mercy, abundant skill. And I think as a widow, that's what I think, she would turn to her eldest son to fix the problem. Well, what did he do? Well, look at the text. It's there in 2-4. A bizarre statement. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with what? Me. Now, if you're holding an NIV Bible this morning, it says, dear woman, what does this have to do with me? Dear is not in the Greek. When you read it in the Greek, it says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, beloved, this is very important in this text. Because we're going all the way through the book of John. And this marks, if you will, a major change in the relationship here in John's gospel. Jesus had left home presumably about a few months before. He had been anointed, if you will, by the Holy Spirit at his baptism for the work that the Father had for him to do. And he entered, you would agree with me, into public ministry. This is, if, and I don't want to get too technical. Remember the wedding was at the third day? There are scholars who have written volumes on this, that this is the seventh day of the first week of his ministry. So on the third day is presumably the seventh day. And see, now we have a week in the life of Christ going with the first week of creation and they allegorize it. I don't want to make a big deal, but it's the seventh day probably of his first week. So this is going to mark a change. Now you you look at that in 2.4. He calls her woman. It's, It's his mom, okay? It's his mother, okay? who at least carried Jesus in her womb, and he calls her woman. Now, you might think that seems harsh. Now, let me just say, it's not really harsh in that culture, okay? Now, I, I want to be clear, it's not very intimate. He probably would have called her by her name, but it, he didn't. But it certainly was not rude. Some have said that it would be like calling somebody ma'am, today. Ma'am, would you, you know, like that. I'm okay. It's a little bit not very personal, but this phrase is not rude. You say, well, why is it not rude? Well, again, look over the next couple chapters, John chapter 4. Certainly you remember this is not the only place where someone was called that. In 421, remember the woman at the well, Jesus in 421 said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, so forth. He called the woman at the well, woman. It's not necessarily a, a rude address. Look over at uh, John chapter 8, okay? I think you'll remember that. We'll get there in a few months or years. But in, in John chapter 8, remember the woman caught in adultery. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I mean, he just performed and saved that woman, if you will, and went on to forgive her sins, and he called her woman. I'm just trying to show this to you. Look over at John chapter 20, but I want you to understand this. John chapter 20, go all the way to the end of the book. Mary Magdalene, the one who had demons exercised out of her, 
Remember in 20, verse 11, she stood weeping outside the womb and so forth. And uh, it says down in 20, verse 13, they said to her, the angels did, woman, why are you weeping? There's that phrase again. Jesus said to her, Johnny, John 20, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Okay, so I just want you to understand, this is not a rude designation towards Mary. And, and the reason I know it's not rude is look back in John chapter 19. Here's especially why. He is up on the cross dying for our sins, if you will. And it says this in 1926, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. I mean, certainly you don't think upon the cross he was trying to make a statement. No, but, but look back at the text. Look, look back. It, it, so it's not intimate, but it's certainly not harsh. And really what Jesus says to her is he's telling his mother that he has a greater uh, priority than the priority of her need in that he is committed to his father's will and his father's time. So literally he says in John chapter 2, why do you involve me? Woman, why do you involve me? Now, let me just take a moment here because this expression occurs, why do you involve me or what does this have to do with me? In the Gospels exclusively, and and don't take this too far, I'm just trying to show you where the phrase is mentioned. It occurs on the lips of demons who vehemently oppose Jesus. What do you have to do with us is the phrase. In the Old Testament, there are parallels that make it very clear that this phrase always distances two parties and usually carries a reproachful connotation. And so it would be fair for me to say, biblically, that Jesus is issuing a fairly sharp rebuke to Mary similar to his rebuke to Peter when he failed to understand the nature of Jesus' calling in Matthew 16 when he said, get behind me, Satan. So there is a, a, a moment here where this relationship is changing. In fact, what's intriguing, it's remarkable, and it's a remarkable fact that when Mary appears during Jesus' ministry, Jesus seems to establish a distance between them, such as Matthew 12, 46, where it says that his mother and his brothers were outside and they were asking to speak to him, but he replied to the person, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. And he said, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Fascinating. You say, Scott, what's happening here? He's entering into public ministry. I'm making a distinction, beloved, when you go back to Luke chapter 2 and he's in the temple. Remember when they went back home and he stayed in the temple? Then they had to go back and get him. And it's interesting that the first words in Luke chapter 2 were from Mary. Jesus, we've been looking for you for three days. And he said, I had to be in my what? My father's house. But it's very interesting in Luke 2.51 
that he went back home and lived in submission to his parents when he was 12. But I'm telling you, this is a deal breaker here. He's just entered into his public ministry and Jesus is wanting to politely, without being rude, tell his mom that this is going to change from here on out. From here on out, uh, you know, I'm going from son to Messiah with the arrival of this public ministry. Uh, Carson, the commentator, was helpful here. He said the tone is not rude, but it is abrupt. He said that the purpose of his coming, speaking of Jesus, his only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will, John 5.30. And he said this must have been very difficult for Mary. Think about it. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely upon him as the family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood for no No one, Carson said, listen to this, for no one could this have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. And he said, perhaps that was part of the the sword that would pierce her soul, according to Luke 2.35. And he said, for this, we should honor her the more. So, beloved, listen, Jesus signals a change in relationship. It's as though Jesus is saying to her, my ministry has now begun. No longer will earthly needs and relationships determine my course of action. And Mary, from that time forward, you no longer, in this sense, relate to me as a son, but your Messiah. And the reason I say that is the next statement in the text bolsters this. Would you look at it in chapter 2, in verse Five, four, excuse me, woman, what does this have to do with me? And Jesus said, my hour has not, what? It's not come. My hour has not yet come. What a statement. What hour? What's he talking about? Well, it's very clear in the Gospels that he's referring to his hour of suffering. He's referring to his hour of death. And he's referring to his hour of exaltation. And you say, well, What's he talking about? He's saying, listen, Mary, my hour's not come. I have work to do, and I'm listening and in submission to my father, whom I'm obeying. And he says, my hour's not come. In fact, look over in John chapter 7. This is all over in the gospel. John chapter 7, verse 6. And I'll just touch on this because it's throughout. But in John 7, verse 6, it says, Jesus said to them, He's speaking, is he not? He said to them in 7, 6, My time has not yet, what? Come. My hour's not come. My time has not come. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. You go up to the feast. He said, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully, what? Come. In other words, He had ministry to do. Look at the end of chapter 7 at verse 30 when he said they were seeking to arrest him in 730, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. What hour? His suffering, his death, his exaltation. If you go over to chapter 12, which is 
Fascinating, though, you know that he entered here into chapter 12 on his triumphal entry. But watch it, what he says in 1223. Jesus answered them, the hour, what? Has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look over at chapter 13, or go down to 1227. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. As soon as he gets to the triumphal entry, his hour is upon him. Look over at chapter 13, 1. He says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And so here it forces us back to the first question. How could Jesus' words been a response to Mary's request of Jesus to remedy the shortage of wine? Listen, one put it this way. He said, first, although Mary probably had put out the need for wine in simple terms, I think sometimes, beloved, Jesus looks beyond and detects symbolism in these statements more than maybe the speaker envisaged, you know, thought so. Uh, In other words, Mary wants the wedding to end without shame. Jesus remembers that the prophets maybe have characterized the messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. Elsewhere, he adapts the wedding feast as a symbol, a true symbol of the consummation of his messianic age in chapter 22, where he talks about the marriage feast and so forth. And so here, Jesus is entirely correct to say that the hour of wine and joy and messianic age and his hour of his glorification has not yet come. I think he's just telling Mary it's not time. I'm not ready for death. And that leads me to say this. Secondly, the entire gospel of John is moving towards the cross. It's moving towards his glorification. And listen, don't think that Jesus' ministry before the cross was irrelevant Don't think it was just even only preparatory, if you will. Rather, his miracles are said to anticipate the cross. And this is why even Jesus at the end of this sign said the disciples witnessed Jesus' glory and they believed on him. Now, obviously, they're going to see more things as the gospel of John unfolds. But listen, this ministry mattered and my hour has not come. I have things that need to be established. In other words, I just want to say to you, he's in control and submission to his father's will, not anyone else, including his mother can change this. Now, beloved, I, I just even hate to maybe mention this, but I, I will and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be caustic. This is the passage that the Roman Catholic Church uses to pray to Mary. They cite this one. In fact, they would say you need to pray to Mary, and what they call this is co-redemptrix. They put her on par with Jesus himself, and this is the passage upon which they built it, that there was no wine, she asked him wine, and then he performed the miracle. I'm just saying to you, beloved, is far from that. He's on a mission to his father. And he reminds Mary, though she bore him, and I think though D.A. Carson is right, we should honor her. It would be fair for me to say that we shouldn't venerate her, though. And this passage is unmistakably clear regarding that. So I just tell you that for your information. You say, why do they pray to Mary? Right here. 
because they think if you pray to Mary, you can get to Jesus when Hebrews is going to tell us that we have a great mediator and we can go straight into the presence of Jesus. But I just make that known to you. So, in fact, to be honest, go back to John chapter 2. There's something commendable about Mary here. She, she just says, in two, and I'm not trying to state it other than that, she said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she, she submitted to him. In other words, just you do whatever he tells you to do. She leaves the matter in Jesus' hands. So I take you from the marriage celebration to the momentary crisis to the miraculous command. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text, verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Stop there just for a moment. I just, I, I, I don't, I probably shouldn't bite on this. How many water parts are there in verse 6? Six. And then there's a number of commentators that say, ah, see, the number of the Lord is what? What's the number of the Lord? Seven. Oh, there's six here. This is the incompleteness of the water pots showing our need for the Savior. No, beloved, I just think there were six water pots on the wall, okay? I don't think there's any kind of rich symbolism there. I don't think John's trying to find the secret meaning. I think there's six water pots there. You say, why are they there? Look at the text. For the Jewish rites of purification. Now, you say, what's that? You go over to Mark chapter 7. They had to wash the utensils and wash their hands. And I think there's some symbolism there. And so I think these water pots were there, and you can see they were quite large water pots. They were 20 to 30 gallons. You can begin to add that up. That's close to 180 if you fill that up to max, if you will. But there were those water pots that were probably there for the wedding to wash themselves. They were so meticulous to do that, okay? And look at the, now, the command is here. Jesus said, verse 7, to the servants, here's the command, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, it's interesting. We don't know what Mary's role was, but all I know is this is my son, Jesus. Listen to what he says. And he gave them the command, and they did. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some water out. Take it to the master of the feast. They took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, it had become wine and did not know where they came from. Though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until what? Now. And he performs a miracle. They filled the water pots, if you will, the jars to the top. It proves that there was no deception here. There was no trickery involved. The best wine was usually served first. Then the lesser quantity would come out later. You understand that. In fact, I'm not trying to mince words in the text when it says there in the text in verse 10, they serve the good wine first. Then when the people have what? Drunk freely. You say, well, okay, then they bring out the poor wine. And uh, it's probably because a lot of the people were inebriated. That's what the word means. Every time you find the word in the scripture, it means to be inebriated. So you drink the good wine at the beginning because it tastes good. But once people get going down the road, you know, they can bring out the poor wine and it doesn't matter as much. Here, he saved the best wine for last, if you will. It was the sweetest, freshest, best tasting wine that they ever had. And you understand the miracle there. 
They filled the water parts with water, if you will, the jars. It was not fermented. And the Lord brought into existence wine that came from nothing, in essence, from water. There's no fermentation process here. There's no let the time go, let the season go. Listen, beloved, he is God in the flesh. He is the creator of the world. You say, okay, turn water into wine. Well, who can do that? Only, only God can do that, okay? Now, if there is an illusion, an allegory in this miracle, I think it could be that the new wine that our Lord brings is contrasted with the Jewish system of purification. I can understand that. Those purification jars were there so that people can continue to be religious. And here, Jesus comes and he offers the new wine. And certainly in Mark 2, 22, the new wine is a symbol of the full of the salvation that has come in Christ. So here's the the principles that we see, and it leads to the fourth and final principle. Here we are, the miracle's culmination. In other words, what's it all about? Well, it's very clear what it's all about. It's there in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, just for a moment there, you know, because words matter. This is breathed out by God. I find it fascinating. This is not the first of the miracles. It's not what he says. He doesn't say this is the first of wonders. It's other places. Those are good words. He doesn't say this is the first of the mighty works. No. He uses this Greek word, as you see it in the ESV. This is the first of his signs. And he performed this sign because they point to a greater reality than the miracle itself. And here... It was a twofold purpose. Number one, verse 11, it manifested his, what? Glory. It put Christ on display. He is God in the flesh. His miracles reveal who he was. If you look back at chapter 1, in verse 14, there it is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his Glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says in 118, no one has ever seen God, only the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made himself known, or he has made God known in Christ, if you will. So these signs manifest and reveal Christ's person. They reveal his identity. They reveal not only his power to turn water into wine, the first sign, but they reveal his identity that he is God. It's now become visible, if you will, in the person of Christ. And they reveal the convincing proof of his deity. That's the point of the passage. That's the point. This is who Christ is. So when people tell you he's one of many ways, tell me who else can do that. Tell me who else who was virgin born. Tell me who else who can perform 37 miracles. Tell me who else can can perform these signs. Tell me who else can dip a little, you know, cup and pull out wine. And it's the best tasting, sweetest, freshest wine. They are convincing proof to you this morning on who Christ is. This is who he is. He's God's only begotten son. These signs, if you will, 211 manifest his glory, okay? 
they reveal who he is. And obviously this glory will be revealed throughout John. And the glory will be revealed even in his death and his exaltation. Listen, only God can do this. And just as God created uh, the world in Genesis 1, our Lord now as God is creating wine that came from water. Secondly, most importantly as well, 2.11, the disciples believed on him. Always these signs were the, for the purpose of believing. And here these five disciples, at least that we see here in the text, believed on him. They kept trusting in him as he revealed and manifested his glory. Those signs always pushed to faith in Christ Which bothers me today because the people who claim signs and wonders do the signs and wonders for themselves. But when Christ did these signs and wonders, they were signs pointing people back to himself that it would lead to and authenticate belief in Jesus Christ. So here's the purpose of his coming. To reveal his glory and that you would believe on him. And the question I have for you this morning is, are you on the guest list? Are you on the guest list at the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to Revelation 19? Are you there? Do you have a ticket to get into that wedding feast at the end of Revelation 19? There's only one way to get that ticket, and that ticket is through faith. That ticket is through belief, and Christ here came to reveal himself Reveal his glory for this purpose, Grace Church, that you would put your hope and confidence in him. And for those who do, he gives them the wonderful gift of eternal life.